the reading for today is um, John chapter 3 uh, and the first uh, 21 verses. Um, it's the meeting of Jesus with Nicodemus. Um, you probably know that normally my wife Jane does the readings, uh, but she knew what I was going to say today, and so she's gone away for the weekend to Canada. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born... When they are old, Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and, you do, not, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into the heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses was lifted up, uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the man, Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, Nicodemus uh, was an important man. Uh, not only was he a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. I, I think if the Secretary of State for Religious Affairs got in touch with me and said, I'd like to come and see you, I, I think I would have been quite impressed. You know, thank you so much for coming to see me, sir. Uh, what would you like to know about my ministry? But do you notice Jesus does the complete opposite? He's very blunt and he doesn't even actually respond directly to what Nicodemus had said to him. Nicodemus basically says, Hello, Rabbi, from the miracles that you are doing, you're clearly a godly man. And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Uh, the word born again can be born anew, uh, born from above. So why does Jesus start with this? Well, isn't it because every human needs to be born again? Have you been born again or have you been born from above is a question that every single human needs to answer. And to understand why it is such an important question, I'm going to try to put it into context. The starting point is that the Bible tells us that God is the creator. If you're following the Bible in a year, reading sections of the Bible each day so that you read the whole Bible in a year, then last Friday, you will have read that passage from Matthew's gospel where Jesus refers to God the Father as the creator. And God is called the creator in the Bible because he made all things. He made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. In the heavens, he created all the heavenly beings, the angels, the cherubim and seraphim and all the rest of the heavenly host. On the earth, he created the plants, the animals, and of course, humankind. But we humans are unique. We are the pinnacle of God, of all that God made. We are created in the image of God. And as Wayne made the point a moment ago, we are all individually loved by God. Now, from the Bible narrative, we understand that in the heavens, one of the senior angels rebelled. The essence of a rebellion is simply moving your allegiance, isn't it, from one person to another or possibly even to yourself. You are simply saying to whoever is currently in authority over you, I no longer accept your authority. I recognize somebody else as having authority. Let me give you an example from history. In 1775, the British colonies in America rebelled. They declared that they did not accept the government in London had any authority over them. And ultimately, they were successful. The result is that the former colonies came under the authority of the government in Washington, D.C., and not the government in London. Fast forward 85, 86 years to 1861, and the southern states in the United States rebelled. They said they did not accept the Washington government had any authority over them. And of course, that resulted in the American Civil War. And as we know, their rebellion, the southern states' rebellion, did not succeed. The southern states were defeated in the Civil War, and the authority of the Washington government was re-established over them. So what the Bible indicates is that in the heavens, a senior angel became proud and rebelled against God. He decided he was better than God and set himself up as his own God. And he also persuaded a number of other angels to worship him and not to worship God. And of course, the rebelling angel is the devil, also known as Satan. It's not clear from the Bible why the devil rebelled, 
Perhaps it was his realization that human beings were not only uniquely loved by God, but that humans would eventually be above angels. You remember that bit in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says, do you not know that we humans will judge angels? Now, from the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, we know that the devil's rebellion will fail. And the punishment for his rebellion against God is that he will spend eternity in hell. Although churches don't often talk about hell these days, the Bible actually says quite a lot about it, and Jesus made many references to hell and to final judgment. We know that hell is a place of anguish and agony, utterly separated from the presence and goodness of God, and for eternity, forever. Two points. Firstly, contrary to popular belief, the devil is not in control of hell. His punishment is to be thrown into it. And secondly, the book of Revelation makes it clear that in hell, the devil and his fallen angels will be in agony and will be tormented day and night forever. You see, our God is a God of perfect justice. And throwing the devil and his fallen angels into the eternal agonies of hell is a just and fitting punishment for their rebellion. So let me just summarize where I've got to so far. The devil was originally an angelic being. He rebelled against God. His rebellion will ultimately be overthrown, and he and his fallen angels will be thrown into hell. And hell is a ghastly place of punishment with agony and anguish, which never ends. Now, I can see you sitting there thinking, well, that's all very interesting, but what on earth is its relevance to Jesus meeting Nicodemus one night? Well, the relevance is this. The devil didn't only take angels with him. He also managed to persuade humans to rebel against God. God had given the first humans some rules and the devil persuaded them to rebel against God and break those rules. So all humans who have been born thereafter are born into that rebellion. So it's not actually surprising when we look around the world today, we see constant rebellion against God. People go say, God doesn't exist. That is the ultimate rebellion, isn't it? Or they say, I don't accept God has any authority over me. I do it my way. Or, I am the person in control of my life, not God. Or anyway, God's rules are outdated and unacceptable. I live my life by my rules. The problem is that God is a God of perfect justice. And so the punishment for our rebellion against him must be the same as the punishment given to the devil eternity in hell. Of course, hell was never intended for human beings. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us of the final judgment, and he refers to hell as 
the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But a God of perfect justice cannot put the devil in hell if he doesn't also put all humans in hell too, because our offenses are the same. Um, this isn't in the Bible, but I can almost hear the devil smirking and saying to God, yep, I and my rebelling angels should go to hell. But you're a God of perfect justice, so if you put us in hell, you put all these humans in hell too. And you're not going to throw humans in hell because you love them, these worthless humans. I mean, you've got to give it to the devil. It's a quite a clever stalemate, isn't it? A God of perfect justice cannot punish him and his angels for their rebellion if he doesn't mete out the same punishment to us human beings for the same offense. And it is then that God does something quite incredible. He becomes a human. The creator becomes one of his own creatures. Jesus Christ, although he was part of the Godhead, became a human baby and was born as a human baby. Jesus, when he grew up, then went to the cross and died on it. Jesus had not rebelled against God. He did not deserve any punishment. But he died on the cross, so the penalty that was ours, that perfect justice demanded, was paid. As the Apostle Peter explained in his first letter, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By Jesus' wounds on the cross, you have been healed. So although all humans deserve to be thrown into hell, Jesus' death on the cross gives to each one of us a way of escape from that punishment. There is, however, one additional point, which perhaps I can illustrate this way. I talked earlier about the American Civil War. At the end of the American Civil War, the rebellious southern states had to apply to be readmitted to the United States. At the beginning of the war, they had separated themselves, and although the war was over, they were still separate, so they had to apply to come back in. And the same is true for us humans. Jesus' death on the cross has provided a way of escape from the penalty of our rebellion. But we still have to take steps to make that way of escape our own. We have to turn away from our rebellion and come to Jesus. We have to ask Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior and to have his authority over us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we are born again, born anew from on high and are saved from the risk of going to hell. So let me just summarize this. All humans fall into one of two groups. Group one are those who have found salvation in Jesus, and they will have eternal life. Group two 
are those who have not found salvation in Jesus, and they will spend eternity in hell. Now, I'm very conscious that these days people don't like being presented things in such uncompromising ways. They much prefer things to be more relative. You know, well, it's true for you, but I'm not sure it's true for me. So I'd love to find a gentler way in getting this message over. But when I stand here, what I'm trying to do is to tell you what I understand the Bible to mean. And it seems to me when I read this passage in John 3 that Jesus is not compromising. He is telling Nicodemus some very clear truths. Verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, born from on high. Jesus is not giving options. He's not saying, well, actually, there are a number of different ways to secure eternal life. Be a nice person, fast on Fridays or whatever. On the contrary, Jesus is quite clear. No one sees the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one sees the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Um, verse 16, he goes on with that famous verse that we quite often like to quote. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is here confirming what Wayne was saying earlier, that God loves each human. And we see the extent of that love. It's so great that Jesus was prepared to come as a human and to die for us on the cross, to provide a way of escape from the punishment that our rebellion against God deserved. Now, I get two more things from this. There are lots you can get from this verse, but I get two more, and they're these. Firstly, do you think that Jesus would have died on the cross if there had been another way of avoiding hell? If we could have avoided hell by our good deeds or things of that sort, I don't think Jesus would have died on the cross because it wouldn't have been necessary. And secondly, when you look at the agony that Jesus went through for us on the cross. Surely that's an indication of how appalling the punishment of eternity in hell would be. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could have a sort of more comfortable life. He died because there was absolutely no other way in which we would have salvation. And then verse 18 Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already. Uh, surely this verse confirms what I said a moment ago. All humans fall into those two groups. Group one, those who believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Group two, those who do not believe in Jesus and therefore stand condemned to eternity in hell. Now, there was a, a battle going on, and in the middle of the battle, uh, a young soldier jumped into a shell hole to take cover. And he was amazed to find, sitting in the shell hole, an old soldier put his rifle down, undone his tunic, smoking a cigarette. And the young soldier looked at him and said, what are you doing? Do you not remember? Our commanding officer said, we're outnumbered four to one. And the old soldier said, yeah, but I've killed my four. 
Now, I tell you that story because it seems to me that one of the failings in recent years in the church is we think, seem to think, well, I found salvation in Jesus, and that's all I need to do. And I forget that Jesus didn't just die for me, but that he died so that every single human could escape from hell. As the Apostle Peter put in his second letter, God doesn't want anybody to perish. God wants everybody to find that salvation that Jesus has provided. And I wonder, do we really take on board that our friends and members of our family who do not yet know Jesus are in eternal danger? And if we do, I think the question we need to ask is, what are we doing about it? For example, the Alpha course starts next Wednesday. Have we prayerfully considered people we could invite to the Alpha course? Have we said, oh, we asked them once and they didn't seem interested? I know someone who was asked five times. The first four, she said no. The fifth, she came. She found Jesus as her own Lord and Savior, and she's now ordained and bringing other people to salvation in Jesus. But Alpha is not the only way to bring people to Jesus that we could be praying about. Some years ago, I heard about a woman. She's very shy. She would never have stood on a stage like this uh, or given a public speech. But she just used to have an ability to get alongside people, have a cup of tea with them, take them for a coffee, and talk to them about the reality of Jesus Christ. And on average, she led one person to Jesus every fortnight, 25, 26 people a year. Ed Silvozo is an evangelist, and he's used to addressing large crowds. However, he tells us that as a, a teenager, he was very shy. Each day, he went to school traveling on the public bus. Uh, one night, he had a dream, and in that dream, he imagined that he died and was coming to the gates of heaven, and he saw the joy and the glory of heaven before him. And then he was aware, down beside him, were a whole load of people who had failed to get into heaven, and he recognized that they were the people who'd traveled on the bus with him every day. And they were shouting out, don't let him into heaven. He traveled on the bus each day with us, and he never even told us about Jesus. When Ed Silvozo woke up in the morning, he thought, what do I do about this? I, I can't go and tell them about Jesus. So he decided to do something, the least he could possibly do, which is when he sat on the bus, he would pray for the person sitting beside him, and he would leave one of these booklets, sort of Why Jesus or something like that, on his seat as he got off and left it there, praying that the chap might look over and see it and pick it up and read it. Then he became a bit more courageous. And what he did was, as he was getting off the bus, he used to say, I'm getting off the bus now, but I think this booklet might be helpful to you. Please read it. Then he found he could be a bit more courageous. He could actually give them the booklet a few stops before his stop because he knew that if they asked awkward questions or reacted badly, he could say, sorry, my stop, got to get off. But gradually as he developed it, he got to a stage over some months where he could actually get onto the bus, say, I'm a Christian, I've got some booklets which I think you ought to read. If you've got any questions, ask me, I get off at such and such a stop. Gradually, his courage built 
as he stepped forward. And over the time, he was able more effectively to tell people about Jesus. Now, in my experience, God seldom requires us to take big steps outside our comfort zone. He does occasionally, but most of the time it's incremental. He's looking for us to take the next step. And as we do, he can build us up and take us to the next step. What we need to do is start making the steps. What I think really distresses him is when we stubbornly refuse to do anything. So we here are Christians. We have found salvation through the death of Jesus on the cross. But this is not meant to be a closely guarded secret. It's good news that's supposed to be shared with everyone. So can we be asking ourselves, what are the steps that realistically we can take so that our family members, our friends, and our work colleagues all have an opportunity to know two things. Firstly, that Jesus died for them. And secondly, to understand why Jesus died for them. As we sit, may we pray. Lord Jesus, through your death on the cross for us, we have found our home in you. Please give us the courage and the skills necessary to tell others so that they may know that you died for them and that they may understand why you died for them so that they too might find their home in you. Amen. Thank you.